I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest albums ever made. Wu-Tang Clan's Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. And to talk about that album, I have Rolling Stone's Andre G with us, and then we're going to play Andre's interview with Raekwon about making the album. We are also supposed to have an interview with Ghostface Killa, but he kind of ghosted on us, which I guess is appropriate. But it's been 30 years since Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. November 9th, 1993, the same day Midnight Marauders came out by Trap Called Quest. Very good hip-hop day, strong hip-hop year, strong hip-hop era. But yeah, I mean, Enter the Wu-Tang and the whole Wu-Tang Clan phenomenon was so unique on so many levels. I guess one of the biggest was just the size of the group and the master plan that RZA had for this. He was like Stan Lee or Kevin Feige. He had this whole universe he was going to set out. And the crazy thing is the plan worked, right? I mean, there were these nine incredibly talented guys, all somehow from the same area in Staten Island. And, you know, not every single one of them became solo superstars, but a large number did. I've always said about, like, the Wu-Tang Clan, it's literally a miracle that they came together. You probably can't find nine people in a city now, like, in the whole of New York City that could, like, parallel their impact. And they're in the same borough you like damn near the same like general area of the borough and rizza got everybody on one accord some people initially weren't even cool with each other for them to align the way they did for for them to find each other is literally like a miracle and yeah for rizza to have the the foresight to say okay we're going to kick down the door together and then we're going to roll it out individually and i want this guy to go first for this reason and then i want just to be so deliberate about the rollout is just brilliant on his part it's wild that only just a little bit more than two years earlier in July of 91, RZA was out with a record under the name Prince Rakim with that song, Ooh, I Love You, Rakim. Which was a totally different and kind of corny lover man pop hip hop thing that did not succeed. And he listened at that point to the label. The label said, hey, you can be this cute guy rapper and kind of rap for an audience of women and you'll have a big pop hit and it's all going to work and you'll become famous and it totally flopped. And I think that helped him realize, no, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to have complete control. The label's not going to tell us anything and we're going to make our own thing and make our own fortune and make our own corner of the music industry. And that's kind of what this whole thing was in addition to a, a great and classic album. Yeah, fool me twice, basically. If he were to go around and try to do the conventional thing once again and still not have been successful, then it, who knows if he would have tried a third time. But yeah, once you try it their way and it doesn't necessarily succeed in the way you might have been planning, yeah, why not just go about it your way? 36 Chambers, obviously, like sonically and just everything is so like nonconformist. But then at the same time, RZA, Jizza, who had prior industry experience, they were able to carry that experience into the album rollout. It, it was very divergent sonically, but they still had a little bit of know-how to know, like, okay, this is how things like navigate in the industry. They had the really unique product, but then they also knew what to do with it because of that prior experience in the industry, especially RZA and Jizza. So Protect Your Neck came first. The rebel, I make more noise than heavy metal. The way I make the crowd go wild. Sit back, relax, won't smile. Ray got it going on, pal. Call me the... 
that was the independent single they recorded, and they each had to put in a little bit of money for the recording. I think Ghostface Killer, who had money from the streets, paid for the people who couldn't afford it. And that single became a sensation, and that paved the way for the album and the whole thing. We're inundated with so much music that I don't think we appreciate the value of one song. Trying to craft every element of, of the, the drums, the sample, making sure he sampled it in the manner that he felt was best. Just putting it together, arranging it in a way that all the artists on the track could have their moment and it still sound fresh and still have movement. He changed the beat, he changed the order that the rappers appear on it, everything had to be right. Yeah, exactly. It's also, of course, an unfathomably huge milestone in New York rap as well. I was thinking about this in prep for the episode. Is this is this like the first East Coast quote-unquote event album? I think we're inundated with, okay, last time I was on here, we talked about Travis Scott and how just how momentous and huge he wanted Utopia to be. And you hear that with the production choices and just all the movement and such. And I think some, most people would say like The Chronic might have been like the first album that represented that in general, just because Dr. Dre curated so much and he has so many different artists on the album. But I feel like for the East Coast, like the way RZA orchestrated and curated that album with even so much of the movement on the album production-wise, like, it's like you hear it subtly. You hear it and, like, he'll drop the drums here for two, two to four bars. He'll add, like, a synth or, like, some kind of effect just to provide the, the movement and keep it fresh. But it's not, like, how we're used to hearing, like, I guess... It's not, like, how we're used to hearing a super-produced song at 23 with the beat switches and all of that. And, like, it, for the most part, it'll be, like, the same loop, the same melody, but you'll hear the movement within the percussion and within the subtle elements. And I think that was a really brilliant production and curation, quote unquote, by RZA there. And then, yes, yeah, as, as far as RZA's production, the griminess, some of which wasn't even on purpose, had to do with the limitations of the equipment, as he's told me and many other interviewers. There were tons of limitations on the equipment he was using. It didn't even have the ability to generate the kind of low end it should have. So there's a certain kind of missing sub bass on the album, which lends it that grimy lo-fi feel. And the use of soul samples obviously was really important and something that we're still hearing echoes of. And then there was, of course, the whole kung fu movie Wu-Tang aesthetic, which was wildly, singularly unique and so brilliant to transpose their lives on Staten Island into this kung fu reality. And it's always so fascinating to me how much RZA shares a sensibility with Quentin Tarantino and, of course, their buddies because they have this same love for all that stuff and that whole thing of transposing this Asian pop culture into an American context. Yeah, absolutely. Just the allegorical nature of, like you said, just fusing the martial arts elements, the movies, the themes with what they were going through in Staten Island. A lot of great art fuses universal themes across regions. But yeah, just the way that Rizzo was able to make that one of their defining themes and, and, and something that made them distinctive. And I think one of the things that's hard to wrap our heads back around 30 years later is no one had heard of any of these rappers before this album. Right. So many of these people are legends now and we know their style so well, but that was the first time we're hearing Ghostface. Catch the blast of a hype burst. My clock burst. Leaving a hearse. I did worse. I come rough. It's the first time you ever hear Raekwon. It's the first time you ever hear Method Man and on. And you can hear them fighting for recognition on every track, trying to outwrap each other and let the world know what their style sounds like. And I think that's part of what the, makes the album so exciting is every verse is so hungry on it. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ray said when I talked to him and you'll hear this later, he said that it wasn't quite what you would expect in terms of maybe some people would think they were like writing together every day, all in the studio, nine men at the same time. But it wasn't really like that. People would come in and out of the studio. But even still, like you're coming into the studio and you're Method Man or Raekwon and you hear like go what Ghost laid down. And you're like, oh, shit, I got to top that. I got to compete with that. Like not in a malicious way, but just in a way like you said. So I got to stake my claim on here, too and keep the standard high that yeah you have a duo or a trio who has that element and they feed off of each other imagine feeding off of nine people like you know, that's just you're just relentlessly competitive in that kind of setting i was researching just about the album and i saw method man he said that the way m-a-t-h-o-d man the single came about he thought it was happenstance he was just there by so one day and rizza played the beat and he liked the beat and he just jumped on it and then you think about how can it be also simple with like ghost and ray which i feel like is a precursor to like only built for cuban links i feel like you could put that song right on cuban links and then even seventh chamber with jizza like yeah you would think it it's like just it just happened that way but then these happen to be these these three solo songs ghost and ray is not a solo song but it, like i said it, it was like similar to what we heard on cuban links those happen to be the three of the main solo albums after 36 chambers so maybe good leaders like rizza they have a way of making it seem like it's a happenstance or something just happened by chance but this is still in their vision the whole time and they're guiding you even if it seems like that's not the case, but maybe he, in his head, he's, yeah, I got this beat. I want this to be the, the single to launch Method Man. He might think it's like an organic thing, but no, this is my intention right here. I was just thinking about that because this was like, honestly, this is the first time I ever listened to the album in a critical sense, honestly, just to listen and, and reflect for the pod. Usually I just listen to it because I love it. I, it's literally the second album I ever bought. But yeah, just listening to it intentionally for those nuggets, you Riz's intention in hindsight. You always hear this kind of intelligence at work, the perfect dialogue sample at the perfect moment. And even with the sequencing, the fact that track seven and eight are Wu-Tang Clan and Nothing to Fuck With and Cream in a row, two of the strongest hip-hop hooks ever on the same album on a debut. It's amazing, too, that for that short period of time, RZA got all these guys to listen to him, too. You're going to be first, you're going to be second. They actually went along with it. People say, oh, it's too bad they couldn't really stay together longer as a cohesive group, but it's inevitable when you think about it. How do you tell artists this talented know you got to wait another two years for your solo debut. How long will people put up with that kind of thing? Not necessarily that long, but he did enough to get the whole thing rolling in a way that nothing really ever has since as far as a master plan. 30 years later, there's not much more that can be said about Riz's curatory abilities, but yeah, just the way he laid it out. Even with the skits we hear on the album, I think it's Ghost and Ray or Ghost of Somebody at the end of M-A-T-H-O-D, man. And like, they end up being like we said like the first solo stars even that was intentional like rizzo knew who he wanted to have vocally on the album to highlight their charisma and get the fans and listeners acquainted with them like every little aspect that was just so intentional and you just you hear it more so in hindsight now and of, of course the wild card in the whole thing is you had odb in the group old dirty bastard and he managed to keep him in the group. And it's not a ton, but every time he lets loose on this album, on any, on any album, this absolutely insane singular energy just pops out. And there's never really been anything like him before or since. He doesn't show up a lot on the album, or as much as I would want him to show up on the album. But that's like indicative of why he's such 
a charismatic like one-of-one kind of force because he's just now you see him now you don't like and if he were like oh the consistent guy who was there every day who was just like i don't know maybe he characteristically maybe he wouldn't have that same artistic appeal it's like a chicken or egg kind of thing that's just that's part of the package is what i'm trying to say there's nothing comparable not to the same extent where it's like ghost ray jizza method man odb like not to that volume not at all and yeah to be able to that's part of the miracle that i was talking about earlier to be able to not only get them together but to be able to have them to be able to guide them and have them listening to you for five years like eight men with their own goals their own agendas especially once you get famous you might just you have your own goals you want to go solo you might want to explore other things outside of music but then he was able to keep them collectively focused for a time just on the w like listen let's just do what we can do for the w right now i think one thing that may be under discussed as far as wu-tang at the time was the heavy influence of five percent or stuff on a lot of the lyrics and ideology it's always lurking in the background that's just heavily reflective of the nation of gods and earths being a heavy movement in new york city around that time i think the prime of it was more in terms of its relevance within street culture was like the late 80s early 90s or even people who might have been in the streets living a certain lifestyle they were still like interested and expected to have knowledge of self as they say and just that that understanding of those five percent elements and just the black man as god just all of those kind of theoretical elements you and you hear it like inherently within the album like you said so yeah it's a time capsule for sure you don't really it's not that movement is not as prevalent as it was at one point there's definitely a lot of time capsule elements in the lyrics even the reference to forming like voltron which i think was the first of its kind in hip-hop back then is now antique references to nixon and the plo and all sorts of things that are in the past at this point but at the same time it's incredibly timeless. When people use the term boom bap and talk about the golden age of New York hip hop, this, some Mob Deep stuff, Illmatic, these things are in the dictionary next to that. I got to admit that for me, anything with that production still feels a little bit like home. Yeah, no, absolute same. Absolutely. Yeah. Even being in DC, that just so, I just so happened to be my first exposure to hip hop was like, besides what was on like BET and MTV or whatever, but like beyond that, I was in tune with the golden era, so to, so to speak, 36 Chambers, Illmatic, Ready to Die, Mob Deep. So that sound is just, that's my default sound. If I'm like, people will be like, oh, what are you listening to? Yeah, I'll probably be listening to like newer shit too, but there's also a chance that I'm just like heavy in a, in a quote unquote boom back bag, like just listening to that classic sound. And then obviously there's an element of at this point, 30 years later, it's just the newer entries in that style or that aesthetic it's so obviously like cues to what was going on in that era like the early era it almost feels like inherently like hip-hop has this way of even by virtue of the production it feels like a cover song even if it's not like you're not literally like rapping bring the ruckus again but if you cue to the like the the distorted sample and the dusty drums and even with the bass like they they know what you're getting at they know what the lineage is when you try to find where's the influence of this album in this group today one thing you could look at is was there ever another kind of group of artists that started the same way and split off into solo acts and and the closest thing is probably odd future it's not a one-on-one analogy but there are some similarities there at least structurally yeah i think that would be that they would be the the closest comparison if you were to make one 
because it's yeah they're a miracle too like tyler frank ocean earl like sid like all of them together in one group yeah that's that's pretty rare as well but i guess i feel like you just see the remnants more ideologically than just like people trying to be like the new wu-tang more so people just who are like non-conformist and just putting out records that like aren't mixed to the radio standard or just hookless songs just long songs like even you don't hear long songs as much anymore but just since then since the album like a lot of those elements cued to Wu-Tang and RZA being brave enough to knock down that door and be like all right we're gonna do things our way and it worked and then other people were able to see okay we don't have to conform to just what the record label expects from us to try to appease the top 40 sound through a rap lens we can do what we want I just feel like maybe it's really broad to say but anybody who's just like I said, non-conformist and doing what they want to do, especially sonically and with their own lingo, their own aesthetic, they, whether they know it or not, like within the lineage, they owe or not owe, but it, it traces back to what Wu-Tang did with 36 Chambers for sure. And like you said, it's probably not surprising that there haven't been a ton of other groups of nine people who then spawned five or six solo superstars because the odds are just against you. The odds of finding nine people as talented as that from the same area who know each other are beyond difficult and the odds of keeping them together. It's just, it's all impossible. And it's amazing that despite the fact that they've sued each other and all sorts of stuff, Wooten Klein just put out a great new song called Claudine. To never hear that voice again. It never be the same. When the death is fresh, it feel like your soul is so thin. Sadness and find yourself crying in the open. And it's actually a, a really fantastic song with a, a heart-wrenching verse from Ghostface about his mom, who he's rapped about before. There's a whole series of songs about his mom and his rough childhood. He had two disabled brothers, a long series of confessional songs. Here he is at his mom's grave, and it's actually one of the most haunting rap verses I've heard in a long time. 30 years later, if they could release a whole album as good as that, you'd really have something that would show they were doing at least Nas-level late-career work. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success, and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Limonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. 
and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, most of them, or if not all of them, I I can't really say that any of them that I've listened to in recent years sound like bad, but Method Man still just barring up going toe to toe with like today's he, he Conway, Rome Streets, other artists I can think of. He's just like really tapped in with that indie rap scene. Ghost still delivering, like you said, sharp verses and being very introspective and, and telling stories. And Raekwon is still just like super sharp like from top to bottom yeah like you said i think the x factor would probably be the production and how they decide to go about that i know that claudine was produced it says it's produced by mathematics i think that's the song because i I interviewed rizza a couple months ago and rizza he hinted at a song that gave him the quote-unquote wu-tang feel and it was produced by mathematics so yeah, like you said, if we could get, you know, 11 songs or nine songs in that pocket with that kind of production quality, then hell yeah, I'm all for it. And they've been touring for the past couple of years. Rizzo's, when I talked to him, he said, it seems like they'd be open to it. And like you said, to reference something you said earlier, like they've been through a lot, like legally suing each other, not seeing eye to eye at times, but I think like they may be one of the few exceptions to just like the music group, the music crew as real family. Cause I think like they'll have their issues and get into it here and there. But like you said, at the end of the day, they're touring together. They're still making songs together. It's never, it's rarely if ever crossed the line where I feel like, oh, wow, I don't think, I don't think they'll be able to get back together after this. Cause I think just they have that familial kind of respect. No matter what, okay, I might not be seeing out of eye with you right now i might not want to do the same thing right now but maybe in time we'll do it again and i'll always like even with the method man touring thing recently that occurred where i think they said they were trying to get him to be on the tour with Nas and Busta Rhymes, the tour that they were just on last year. And he was just like, I'm acting, I have a lot of stuff going on, I can't be on the tour. But when it came time to, to come to Jersey, he came out for that one. He's like, all right, listen, I'll do this one for y'all since y'all are my brothers. So it wasn't a complete, sometimes you'll see with groups and rock bands and stuff, they'll just be estranged forever. It wasn't, it just never seemed to be like that with them. We should probably mention the run that followed the debut. Like you were saying, it's it's not just a bunch of great albums, but it includes ones that are arguably among the greatest rap albums ever made. Only Built for Cuban Links, Liquid Swords, Supreme Clientele. And I must say, I have a soft spot for RZA's uh, Bobby Digital album. I, I might be alone in that. And then again, like we said, just for RZA to know who he wanted to highlight on the album. And those ended up being like those first main generation of debut albums that were just all 
kind of genre defining in their own right like you said i, I wish i i guess i'm gonna give a spoiler for the raekwon interview i wish if he had a little bit more time i wanted to ask him if he felt like only built for cuban links is like the best album ever because honestly I, I hate ranking and rating art to be honest like i don't have that experience with like art it's like subjective it's hard to rate but if i had to that just might be like number one for me just the total package of it just the storytelling the production the way ghost and rizzo were going at it on there I, I would have wanted to ask him if he felt that way or if he even cared to think that way but yeah like you said to even have an album that could be considered that without you laughing when i said it <laughs> just indicates the quality of the, the solo work after that initial after 36 chambers yeah it's an incredible album and it's a good way to lead into your interview which we'll play in a second but and i guess you talked to raekwon about this documentary that's long in the works about this album and one thing that's interesting because i, I prepared for this ghostface interview that didn't happen for whatever reason but only built for cuban links as was almost just as much of a ghostface album they were working so closely together at the time, and Ghost was so intent on setting up his own solo album that was to come, which would be Iron Man. And he came really close to stealing the spotlight in a lot of songs, and Raekwon didn't seem to mind at all. He seemed to love giving Ghost his moments on the album. But yeah, let's hear Andre G and Raekwon. There are great albums, there's classic albums, and then there's albums that are just pillars of music history where nothing is the same afterwards. Like, these guys kicked in the door, their own lingo, their own style, their own aesthetic. Nobody nobody involved gave any fucks about conformance or anything that was going on at the time. The album went triple platinum, but the impact is way deeper than the numbers. Today, I'm here with Raekwon, one of the foundational figures of that album, a man tied with Method Man for the most appearances on the album with eight. What's up, family? I like that. I like how you laid that out. My first question, does it feel like 30 years ago? Nah, do it feel like 30 years ago? Not at all, man. Not at all. I mean, I be bugging. I still be asking myself that, too. Like, damn, it's 30 years later. But nah, it don't feel like that. You know, it actually feels about like 10 years later to me. I still feel like we still got a lot a lot in the tank left though, you know, to share to the world, but it's a blessing, man. You know, this game, when we stepped in this game, we was in our early 20s, all of us. Yeah, 30 years, just, you know, three decades, just that shh, you know, but it don't feel like it to me. Yeah, for sure. People talk extensively about RZA and his five-year plan for the Wu-Tang Clan. He told NPR in 2013, he said, I want all of y'all to get on this bus, be passengers, and I'm the driver. And nobody can ask me where we going. I'm taking us to number one. Give me five years and I promise that I'll get us there. Is that how you remember him broaching the idea of the five-year plan? It was definitely, you know, let him take the wheel um, and, you know, see what's going to happen, see what it could do. But for the most part, yeah, you know, he definitely seen what he seen. He believed in himself and that's what we loved the most. We loved the fact that he was so confident and so you know, passionate about what he felt that we could do collectively. So we was all like, yeah, yo, you know, we're going to hear you out, but we also going to communicate as a team, you know? So it was always about the, you know, the, the um, crew actually sitting down and discussing every game plan of what we wanted to do, you know, discussing that game plan, making sure at the end of the day it made sense and, you know, we would actually really hear him out and give him that opportunity to represent for us. But 
everything was always pre-planned. And 36 Chambers is such a distinct album sonically. Sometimes being innovative can be polarizing and sometimes people can't always see the same vision. And in this case, it's nine different people. So I'm wondering throughout that creative process, how much was everyone aligned on trusting the creative process? Mm. Especially like the the unique production decisions on the album. I got to take my hat off to the Abbott, you know, for basically, like I said, driving. You driving, you the producer, we believed in him, you know what I mean? I think that's the biggest thing when you sit down with somebody that you love and respect and you see their passion. He was bringing us somewhere that we was totally new at, at going. So when it came down to really having a game plan of really executing the music, how it's going to sound, how it's going to come out. Yeah, Rizzo by, by Landslide, he was, he was the guide and light. All we did was participate lyrically. As far as the music, yeah, we know good beats when we hear good beats, but I think Wizard was so deep in his craft that we just ain't even challenged nothing that he wanted to do and just let him fly. Yo, that's what it is. Yo, we listen to it. Yeah, that shit is raw. Bye, bye, bye. Next thing you know, we rhyming on it. You know what I mean? And then he would go back, you know, and add his additional touches and changes because that's what we loved about him. He was a producer to us. Me, I know him from the producing era and the rhyming era. So for him to really have his producer hat on, we was like, yo, you you got it right. You know where you're going with it. So we're going to follow suit. Can you take me into what those initial sessions were like with the group? How did you get that creative groove with each other? Like I said, we was all cats from the neighborhood, you know. He already knew the potential that we had on the mic as far as lyrics was concerned. He would call some of us to come to his house and some of us would work, you know, at the moment. Some of us would come there another day and work at the moment. So it was a lot of, you know, everybody passing each other, whatever the case may be. But it really wasn't a lot of us being there collectively together because at that time it was still one foot in, one foot out. Certain joints that we heard other cats doing within the group, we was inspired and we was like, yeah, yo, he killed that right there. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's one in the bag, you know? So what Rizzo was doing was basically creating his own, a compilation of hearing us all do our thing. And when it came down to it, everybody was just like, yo, yeah, that's hard. That's hard. That's hard. You know, and that mm-hmm. that became the, the driving force to building the group. You know what I mean? Because once we started to know the potential that each one of us had, it was kind of like sparking us all to feel like, yo, you know what? I got to represent the same way I heard that one. You know, the same way I heard Method Man. It's like the same way I heard Shimmy Shimmy. It's like, damn, you know, you got you to gotta step your shit up. So a lot of times we weren't in the room at the same time, but we actually made sure that we participated when it came to hearing what he had to say. Do you have a favorite studio session or most memorable studio session from that time? The favorite spot to be was really his crib. You know, he had a place on Staten Island. You know, he had a basement. You know, um, he had, I wouldn't call it a basement. I would call it like a studio apartment where it's like the one room that it had, it was like a small room and he had all, he had all his equipment in there. And um, we would all just crash there. We would all just come there throughout the night. Sometimes it would be 12 o'clock at night. Sometimes it would be 3 o'clock at night. But we felt like we was in his studio then. 
because the crib was shaped. It was it was looking like a studio. So um, you know, we would come crash there, stay to the morning. You know, some of us broke day there, some of us stayed to a couple of hours. It depends on the moment, but the crib was so small, you would barely be able to get all of us in there at the same time. Can it be also simple with Ghostface Killer? That's a track that felt like, in hindsight, felt like a precursor to Cuban Links. Started off on the Allen, AK Shallon, rubber Allen, gunshots thrown the phone down. Back in the days, I'm eight now, making a tape now. Ray I'm wondering if you could take me into just the writing recording process for that one. That was definitely one of our favorite songs on the album. You know, at that time, we were confident in what we were sharing with the world, and we also wanted to give the world a glimpse into how shit go down in Staten Island. And a lot of times, you know, things wasn't simple for us. So when he made that track and had Gladys' voice on it and it felt so warm, but still it made you talk about real shit. It took us from having, you know, all this energy and this rah-rah to really reflecting down on, on how we were living. So, um, you know, me and Ghost, we definitely felt like we could handle that track. And you're right, at the end of the day, that is like a cousin of Crane because it describes real shit that's going on in the neighborhood. I talked about my situation a little bit, you know, um, growing up, you know, um, hearing stories about my father that I never knew, um, how he was a hustler and, you know, at the same time he was an addict. You know, so we were just kind of like writing according to real shit that was going on in our life. You know, Ghost was talking about, you know, he had visions of us going gold, you know, having sex crops one day, you know, because that hustle shit never really left us. We always were street peasant hustlers out there trying to make something happen. So we were just basically giving y'all an insight of our world and just letting y'all know it wasn't that simple for us, you know, but we were able to make it through you know, and and be here today to, to give y'all what we're giving y'all. So that song is definitely a, um, it's a classic song, though. Every time I, I perform that song, it makes me think about those days, you know what I mean? Those hustle days, those, those struggle days, those days of not knowing where you're going, not knowing where, what's going to happen. So it was a good track. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like that was the first moment where you realized the creative synergy that you and Ghostface had, or was was there a prior moment? Nah, see, you know, see, you know what makes the clan so ill is the fact that when we get when we came to y'all, we came like a like a pack of now ladies or some shit like that with different with different flavors in it. So we all knew who was going to be the ones that's going to talk a certain way on the mic because we was basically assembling ourselves to be everything that an MC is supposed to be. You know, be able to give you that energy, be able to talk about real shit, be able to flip flows, be able to be intelligent, be able to give you visions of narrations of stories and all that. So we wanted to, you know, capture every piece of what an MC represent. And all of us had that within each other. So when it came down to songs like Cream and Can It Be, Wizard knew I was more of a street narrator, somebody that come from out of the streets, that been in it, lived in it. You know what I mean? I never tried to act like I had all this money or whatever the case may be. Yeah, we was making a couple of dollars, but we were still dumb street hustlers trying to be smart and intelligent and 
trying to learn from our mistakes. And that's what we did. We learned from our mistakes. We we took the good with the bad. And, you know, that was something that never, never was going to leave me because when it came down to emceeing, like I said, I never really knew my full-fledged potential. I just knew how to talk about real things, real shit, you know, because I come from the Coogee rap, Rakim era, you know what I mean? The Kane era where lyrics meant something, talking about reality, street shit. I'm just a combination of all those cats, like Rick, you know? You know, so um, Wizard knew what to sit in front of me and say, yo, how you feel about this? Go, go this way with it, go that way with it. You know, so that made us, you know, super authentic because he was, while I was doing this, he was doing that kind of guy. He was over there bouncing this way. He was over there doing that. And that's what made the clan special. So I feel like a lot of fans might have like a perception with those bigger records where it's like, where it's like a lot of y'all on a song that y'all are like all writing together and recording together. But like you said, it wasn't necessarily like that all the time. Right. So with those bigger records, I was wondering, you know, how did that process usually go? Did those just gradually come together or? Nah, the way those went is that it was all about the beat, you know, and once we heard mm -hmm. the beat, once we heard the beat collectively, it was like some of us might have been there before the beat actually was fully done, or some of us might have just walked in on it, you know, and been like, oh shit, yo, this shit is mean. And you heard, you heard, you heard somebody doing a verse, or, you know, you like, oh shit, you know what I mean? Like when I heard it, it was already a couple of members on it already, you know? And at that time, Inspector Deck, his his pen game was just, his pen game was delicious at that time. And, you know, for him to be one of the illest writers in the game, you know, he was the one that basically kind of like spearheaded, hit records with us when it came down to Protect Your Neck, you know, which put us on the map. I tell Deck to this day, like, yo, nigga, you was responsible for setting that off you know what i mean and you know dex a humble dude you know he don't he don't get flabbergasted he just going to do his job but i heard his ver i heard his verse on triumph and once i heard his verse on triumph i knew it was a hit and i knew everybody was going to follow suit some of us was in the studio connecting the dots at the time you know and some of us had walked in later on so that that sometimes be how chemistry works with the clan. And then RZA, he starts to do a Scrabble thing and, you know, chop down a couple of bars from each member or... It's really no potion to it. It's just about verses at that time that connect in the right places, you know what I mean? So when you hear a guy like Meth coming in after Deck on Triumph, it was just a perfect connection. And that's how it is. It's like building a building. You, you start from the bottom and you... You build it up. You got to get the frame right. You got to get the walls right. You got to do the windows. And to me, that's how these skyscrapers was made with that kind of mentality. I saw Method Man. He spoke on a point in his life where he said he was watching a Method Man video on TV, but he's at home in Staten Island and he's like eating ketchup and rice. He has notoriety. He's on TV, but he's not yet reaping the financial benefits. Yeah. I was wondering if you had a similar experience. We always trying to believe in something that might help us get the fuck up out of our, our, our conditions. You know what I mean? This was a dream. This is something that we didn't know if it really was going to happen, but we believed in our brother who seen something in us. And it's like, 
we kind of helped each other where, yeah, he had the knowledge, he had the production, you know, he didn't have the lyrics though, you know what I mean? And here it is, we come with the will and the, um, the loyalty and the wordplay and the, the dedication, you know, it was a combination that created the whole, the whole situation. So it was one of those things where we all needed each other, but yeah. Everybody was everybody was struggling still. Either you're a hustler or you a robber, you know what I mean? For us, we was in both worlds. So, you know, when it was time to do something positive, it was like, yo, let's go this way. You know, the streets is over right now. We, You know, back then the streets was over. We knew it and we knew, yo, put all the energy here, man. But yeah, when we started hearing our records, me, I already knew. I said, yo, once we know the people love it, and they responding to it. They they making sure that they respect what they getting. I knew we was off to the races, so I, re I already was counting my money right there. Like, yo, we about to chew, so it's all good. And so beyond 36 Chambers, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, future music. I saw in August 2020, you told Elliot Wilson that you were working on Only Built for Cuba Links 3 to close the trilogy. I was wondering what kind of update you can give the fans on that one. But one thing about that album, man, it's like, I never knew that it was going to be a Godfather type of mentality with it, you know, where people are want to see these, these trilogies and these, you know, this whole thing, you know. And, and my thing was to make an album that felt like a movie. So, you know, just to give everybody an update on three, you know, I've been sitting down with, you know, my team and my family. We've been talking about it. I have records that I recorded you know, back then that, you know, some of them never got released. And I'm like, mm. these, are, these are joints that at the end of the day, when three come around, this is the sound that I think that people is going to respect. So, you know, just coming off that, that high horse with Cuban links two, which wasn't easy to do, you know, three was something that I was just saying, you know what, when the time is right, it's going to, it's going to be right. But right now, like I said, you know, I choose not to give out too much information on it, but it's yeah. still on the blackboard far as coming out, you know, because once we do Cuban Links 3, that's it. You know what I mean? One thing about me, I believe in the trilogies and that's it. You do a three, you do three movies to it. You complete what it is that you want to get out of that. So it's still on the blackboard. Like I said, it's just about me really feeling like at the end of the day, it's that time. And that's how I am with my music, you know. You know, everybody know the chef for making bodies of work. Not so much of a single guy or whatever. Like, I like to make sure that when my fans get my music, once they put it in, that, that yo, you never got to touch it again. And that's what I always told myself making albums. It's like, yo, I want to make those albums that once you slide it in, yo, just chill, just chill. You could... Whether you in your car, whether you listening to your headphones, whether you really want to just gravitate to painting a picture in your mind, Ray's going to come with those albums. So those albums I don't take for granted. I take my time with them and I take my time with all my albums. And that that's what allowed me to have X amount of classics under my belt, you know, is that you take your time with it. You don't rush it. You make sure you got all the everything you got all the pieces there to make your fans feel like damn he really took his time making this work so when three come you gonna know that i gave it the same energy that i gave all my other albums 
But when you playing with that that whole Cuban link, you know, that whole Cuban link Casablanca legacy, I always want to take my time with that. Mm -hmm. um, Raekwon, thanks again for your time. Is there anything else you want to tell the listeners about anything you have going on? Oh, yeah, definitely, man. I want to tell my fans, you know, um, especially all the Cuban link lovers, you know, I promised you guys a, um, a documentary. So right now, we almost finished with it. I'm happy. You know, this is something that I worked on for a long time because when you got fans all, all, all over the world that is infatuated by this album that I made almost 20, 25 years ago, almost 30 years ago, actually, I know I had to tell a story on how this was designed and how it was made. So get ready. It's called The Purple Tape Files. Um, it should be coming out the top of this this year. You know, I'm working on it to where it may even come quicker. It may come a little bit after, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a deep perfectionist when it comes to making classics and especially about something that my fans love. So get ready for that. Um, you know, like I said, of course, we got some good music coming out as well. Um, all I can say is just get ready, man. Get ready. You know, Chef always like the the feed y'all a dish that y'all know when they come, that shit is going to be right. It's going to be good. <laughs> but this documentary, like I said, um, it's explosive. It has about 50 to 60 of the most influential people in the culture of music, entertainment, sports involved, talking about how this had a lot to do with their livelihood and their their way of living and becoming successful. So that's what's going to make it even more interesting is that so many people had, you know, I was getting threats from my, my friends saying like, yo, I need to be involved with that because what it, <laughs> what it did for my livelihood and what it did for me, it was so inspirational. So we got a ton of celebrities in it that wanted to be involved and this is really going to be something explosive. I, I say that it may be one of the best, you know, music documentaries ever, ever made. And I'm not saying it from a cocky standpoint. I'm just saying it from being real because it's what it's what we love to give to our fans. We want to give you the the creme de la creme of it, the nooks and crannies, the good, the bad, the ugly, the what it took, the real conversations. So you're gonna get all of that in this in this documentary. You know, so yeah. get ready. You heard them. Get ready for it. Get ready. No yeah, Raekwon, thanks again. Thanks for your time. Thanks for, you know, reflecting on the album with us. You got and it. And yeah, you appreciate it. it. You got it, brother. We talk soon. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.